Welcome to Myth versus Craft. I moved to Austin in 1995, nearly five years to the day after Stevie Ray Vaughan died in a helicopter accident. I didn't know it at the time, but Austin billed itself as the live music capital of the world. And over the next few years, I thoroughly enjoyed and took for granted the vibrant live music scene. 21 years later, I had the pleasure of speaking with Mark Procht, who played a crucial role in establishing and nurturing that scene. Mark moved to Austin in 1974, and though he initially had hopes of making it as a pedal steel guitar player, he soon found himself on the other side of the stage, working as a sound engineer and later on managing a number of bands. He's worked with Texas Music Royalty, including Willie Nelson, Jerry Jeff Walker, Asleep at the Wheel, The Fabulous Thunderbirds, Jimmy and Stevie Ray Vaughan, and many, many more. Mark visited my home last May and spent a little over an hour sharing great stories and discussing his book, Home Today, Gone Tomorrow, which has over 40 years worth of behind-the-scenes photographs that Mark took while touring the world. I highly recommend the book and hope that you take a moment to learn more about it at hometodaygonetomorrow.net. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mark, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. You grew up in and around New York City. What are some of the most special memories you have of your childhood in New York? Well, my, my parents, who um, really encouraged me to do, uh, let me follow the, the, my, the path that I wanted to follow, and early on it was music. They may not have understood it, you know, understood what I was trying to do, and I'm not sure if I knew what I was trying to do, but, you know, in my high school days and even junior high, um, again, my folks really encouraged me to go out and do those, the things that I felt comfortable doing, going to see music. I saw some great concerts. Early on, I had a group of friends that um, were, you know, turned me on to a lot of good music. There was this transition when I was just kind of doing the baseball and the sporting thing. And then all of a sudden, I started to hear more music. I got turned on to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And all of a sudden, I realized music was a fairly important part of my life. And uh, it was it was ultimately going to define a lot, uh, almost everything of what I was ultimately going to do. What What are some of your most special or some of your earliest musical memories? Some of those concerts or some, the first time that it, you feel like music really began to play a role in your life? Well, growing up and around the New York area, early on, there was um, a series of concerts in Central Park in New York in the, uh, in the, in the, in the ice skating rink during the summer. And the shows, I believe they were like 3 or $4 a ticket. So they'd release the schedule in, say, April or March or April. And my friends and I would sit down and we'd kind of mark off, <laughs> you know, it didn't take much to take go to 12, 13, 14 concerts. So somebody would say, I want to see this. You should see this. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd get our tickets. It didn't take much. And I saw some amazing music and all kinds of styles of music, everybody from Poco, which was kind of a country rock band, to John McLaughlin, uh, the jazz guitar player, innovative guitar player, just dozens and dozens of concerts and amazing shows. Just again for like three or four dollars. Wow! I was a little after the the um, the Fillmore was already gone, but Academy Music was the place where there were great concerts. Everybody from the Allman Brothers to Hot Tuna, Commander Cody the new riders of the purple sage. I was trying to, I was ultimately, I started following kind of a country path. So, um, 
it was just a really interesting evolution of different styles of music. You mentioned that you began to uh, appreciate or get into country music. How did you develop that appreciation? Was it just a natural progression where you heard one artist and, and you did you befriend some people who liked that music? How did you discover country music? I think it was through stylistically listening to different music. I Again, growing up and going to high from junior high to high school, I started listening to The Grateful Dead. And there was a common thread because The Grateful Dead had a lot of blues and a lot of country influences. From The Grateful Dead, I got turned on to the new writers of the Purple Sage and Commander Cody, Flying Burrito Brothers, more what you, what you would consider contemporary newer artists. But out of that, I discovered Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and uh, I started to realize, hey, I, I really enjoyed and liked the music. And I started to listen to George Jones and Hank Williams and Bob Wills, and then really made this connection to Austin, Texas through the music. While still in New York, you learned how to play pedal steel guitar. Were there many local bands in need of a pedal steel guitar player in New York? I don't think many people knew <laughs> what a pedal steel guitar was, though there were some, and there was a little group of people that actually in New York uh, embraced country music and steel guitar. So I actually got to meet some people who helped me more mentor me, and and uh, ultimately my teacher, uh, an individual by the name of Stu Schulman, and Stu was living in upstate New York, and I'd go visit him, and he'd give me steel guitar lessons, and he came to Austin via Dallas, and that's what ultimately brought me to to, to visit Austin. I know you uh, you went to visit him, uh, I believe, in 1974. What was it about Austin in 1974 that originally captivated you? Growing up in around New York and New York City, and every you know there, there's that that style uh, what people think of New Yorkers pushy, loud, you know, just they everybody knows everything and they let you know that. So I'm about 19 years old and I got on a plane and I get on a brand of airlines flight and it's Christmas Eve and I fly down to Austin and uh, Stu and his two best friends. Uh, one Pootie Locke and another Michael Gene Schroeder picked me up at the airport, and that's the start of my three weeks, my three week visit into Austin. And I was just enamored, knocked out by how friendly everybody was, just laid back. Not all, not everybody was competing with each other. I just, I had never experienced being in a different part of this country. Uh, other than the Northeast for any length of time. So uh, the the whole musical scene that was going on around then, everybody was friendly. You had B.W. Stevenson and Asleep at the Wheel and Jerry Jeff Walker, of course, Willie Nelson. And everybody talks about the armadillo and the scene that was going on. It was just amazing to me. And you're really impressionable when you're 19, 20 years old. You're not sure where you're going and what you're doing. And all of a sudden, I land here in Austin and um and again it was just a small town you have to really visualize that it's not the austin you step outside and look at today i can't even imagine what the 50s and the 60s would have been like it would have been a great place to live but um again by the 70s it was still fairly simple to get from you know south austin which you'd consider ben white was considered the farthest south you'd really go right. without being out in the country and on the north side if you went to 183, you were out in the country. I mean, you know, there. So you could you could drive across town in five minutes, which 
people, you know, laugh about today because of all the traffic on Mopac at 35. You wrote in your book that coming from New York, there were so many lines drawn. And in Austin, it just wasn't that way. Can you elaborate on that? In New York, it was, everybody was, I hate to say they're, they're looking out for themselves, but everybody is very leery of people. You know, they're not, they don't open up very much. And this proving of who you are and what you can do, and I'm better than you at this, was just an everyday occurrence. And when I came into Austin, nobody seemed to have the, set those boundaries. Everybody just seemed to be, you know, helping each other. There was That was a thing. Um, there was no competition in the sense that people would, if they could help you, they would help you out in a second. And that meant if they, if you needed a car and you need to go here, take my truck, jump in it. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if there was, um, trying to find a gig, helping somebody else get settled in another job. And it just seemed to be very pleasant. And the atmosphere, uh, was, was very easygoing. So all that said was, did you struggle to make the decision to move and to leave your life in the Northeast behind? Or was it a slam dunk? It's pretty much a slam dunk. I guess I spent three weeks here, experienced Austin, and pretty much said, I want to come back. I went back to New York. I was still enrolled in school, and I was going to to, um, a university up in Massachusetts, and I finished the semester out, stayed the summertime just to basically be around my family, but I had decided come September, I was going to pack everything I had and really no plan. I mean, no idea what I was going to do, but, you know... By then, I think I was 20 years old, and I figured I could I could make it work some way or another. I read in your book that you uh, you know you packed what what the few belongings that you had at the time, one of which was a, a twin reverb. Do you still have that? I still have that twin reverb. Are you kidding? And it's a, it's worth quite a bit of money. I've I've had offers from everybody, from the Vaughn brothers to Eric Clapton, who wanted to buy it, <laughs> and I have never sold it. Oh wow, that's wonderful. Uh, Once you arrived to Austin, a friend hooked you up with a job at Lone Star Sound, and you started working as a sound engineer for Willie Nelson. Did you have any prior experience doing sound? Well, when I did come down here, I had a, I had a short, some aspiration I might be able to be, that I'd be a steel guitar player. But early on, I realized I I was doing okay, but I wasn't a great steel guitar player. And by the time I got to Austin, uh, quite a few of my friends were the guys playing in bands around town. And it really kind of made me have a, a, a moment of, uh, you know, kind of think about what I was going to do and realize I might not be the best steel guitar player. But I was also studying electrical engineering, and I was really uh, attracted to uh, the studio sound and live recordings and, and that type of thing. So it wasn't far-fetched when um, I was given an opportunity to, to go to work for Lone Star Sound, but I had no experience. The funny part about the story, more than anything, is Lone Star Sound was supplying Willie Nelson with their sound reinforcement. They had a crew of three people. They really didn't need to hire a fourth person. But again, one of the first persons that I did meet at the time, Pootie Locke, he became Willie Nelson's tour manager, production manager of sorts. And I think with a little bit of a twisting of the arm, (laughs) um, Jerry Potter, who owned Lone Star Sound, gave me my first gig. You toured with Willie for eight months, and you wrote in your book that when you came off the road, and I'm quoting, I knew I wanted to get back on the road ASAP. I've spoken with artists who view touring as a necessary evil, and it's something that enables them to do what they truly love, which is to perform and to play music. What was it that you enjoyed so much about being on the road? 
You know, it's something, and again, this has to do with people that ultimately make a living out of being, whether it's a musician or a part of the, of the production itself, the crew. And they find out early, early on that they just have a love for it. And sometimes hard to explain. I mean, I realized from the very first time I left Austin to go out on the road that I enjoyed it. Every aspect, seeing the country, see, experience things I'd never seen before. Um, and it started out kind of a small, a small circle around Texas and then it expanded out from there and ultimately expanded to around the world. But I never regretted one day of the time I spent on the road. Because it's, it's incredibly hard work. You talk about 16, 18-hour days, first one in, last one out, and it seems like it was well worth it for you. And I don't know if it was just visiting new places, meeting new people, the camaraderie with the people with whom you were, but it seems like you were. it was just a natural fit for you. Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at that. One was the camaraderie with the people that you're working with. When you're, when you're out, whether it's in, you know, in a truck or in a bus or whatever, you're out there and you're a group of people doing your thing by, not by yourselves, but you're, you're, you're traveling around, you're, you live together days, weeks, months at a time. And there's a little bit of this, it's us against them because you are out there. Um, and you, you ultimately, you meet some great people, but, but you form a bond and it's, um, it's just something that is, it's hard to explain. You, you pass other bands on the road and you see different people or you see friends, you run into somebody, you know, you're in New York City and they're playing across town and, you know, and you're playing at this venue and, you know, it's just, you see people in the craziest places. Of course, the other part was it was just enjoying seeing the world, um, traveling. Um, again, and you said it, the work is is incredibly hard. So many people think we're on this paid vacation. You know, they go, <laughs> man, you're so lucky you got to be in the music business. And it didn't, you know, it didn't matter of course, you know, working around sound and lights are two of the hardest parts of the business. First in, last out, incredibly long days. You're lucky if you just get a moment to um, to just grab a bite to eat real quickly. It was never easy, but it was certainly, you felt a, a sense of accomplishment of what you were doing. You spent a couple of years doing sound for Asleep at the Wheel and later drove an equipment truck for Jerry Jeff Walker. I get the sense that you enjoyed and still enjoy driving cross-country. And I almost imagine it having a meditative quality to it. What What is it about driving that you enjoy so much? Oh, that's exactly it. To me, it's relaxing. I can drive thousands of miles with hardly blinking an eye. And, um, you know, again, I enjoy it. I enjoy driving from one or two in the morning till five or six when it's really quiet out there. And it's just beautiful. And if you're driving across the Rockies or just, you know, Montana or Wyoming, it doesn't matter, Florida, every part of the country is just, you know, a spectacular sights. And uh, I'm amazed because I spent a lot of time behind the wheel and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed watching uh, every inch of the country. I could probably tell you every inch of the highway of every road and every, every, uh, every interstate in this country. But there are times, especially on the buses where I've had some of the guys and they'll just go right back to their bunk and go to sleep for hours at a, you know, hours at end, have a 20 hour drive. And, uh, they, they wake up, you know, on the 21st hour and don't, haven't looked at anything except the inside of their bunk. Do you have any, I imagine that every now and then, uh, you would have a companion, someone come up and, and speak with you and, and have, uh, small talk and, and deep conversations. 
in all your years of doing it, can you think of anyone with whom you particularly enjoyed speaking or, or did you prefer to drive on your own and just think? Well, most of the time you get some people, people come up there when you, let me, let me jump forward, you know, in my bus driving days, um, you know, which is quite a bit different. You start driving typically late at night and maybe somebody will come up and sit with you for a few minutes. And then of course they end up all going to bed. But more recently, who I did enjoy, and I spent thousands and thousands of miles in the bus, was with Eric Johnson, a great guitar player, but a great individual who I knew um, in Austin, but didn't know him nearly as well as after spent, you know, driving, I don't know, 100,000 miles together. And we would talk everything from music and the music business, politics. Um, we, we just spent a lot of time on the road together. And... Uh, there was one tour in particular, Experience Hendrix tour, where most of it was just Eric and I on the bus. So he could, you know, come sit up and we would just chat about all kinds of things. And it'd get funny, it'd get serious, but very enjoyable. After your stint with Jerry Jeff Walker, you worked as a house engineer for Delbert McClinton. And after that, your friend Dave Gardner offered you the position of tour manager for the fabulous Thunderbirds, who were uh, about to head to Europe, I believe. In hindsight, Dave made an excellent choice picking you to be the road manager, but at the time you didn't have any experience as a road manager. Why do you think he and the T-Birds felt that you would be good at that job? First, let me tell you, Jimmy Vaughn had already had called me twice, offered me a job, and I and I used to go see the Thunderbirds play at Antones and around town, and they were to me kind of a ragtag band. I mean in the business, you try to, you you know, especially on a crew level, I had friends that were uh, working for one company in particular, Showco out of Dallas, and they were on tour with ZZ Top or with Leonard Skinner or, you know, even my friends with Willie Nelson. So you're trying to elevate kind of up the ladder and hopefully end up with a band that's going to be, you know, really successful and you're going to go from playing clubs, funky clubs, to maybe get to theaters and, and arenas. Um, you know, Jerry Jeff was doing really well. We play colleges, we play theaters. Um, and, uh, you know, you want to see some progression in your life. So when the thun, I knew the Thunderbirds in the, in the late seventies and the early eighties, and it just seemed like I said, like I said, a ragtag bunch of guys. Um, and again, I was still as at the time I was still considered myself to be a sound engineer as, you know, as my job description. But again, when Dave called me and they were trying to find a tour manager, now I had seen, th- you know, hundreds of tour managers work. I knew what it would really take. I just hadn't done it before. But uh, what sealed the deal was, in fact, that they were going to Europe. And I figured, let me give this a try. Let me see what would happen. And um, I like to think it was a good decision all the way around. For sure. But why do you think they thought you would be good at the job? Was it just uh, they, they had befriended you and they knew that you were a good person and you were organized? What was it that you oh, think? It's, you know what, it was, well, first of all, there weren't that many people that even, you know, the business here was very small. Yeah. It was a small group of people, whether you were salmon or tour manager, whatever experience you had. And it couldn't really afford to bring reality was it couldn't afford to bring somebody in from Los Angeles or New York. So part of it was just being kind of in the right place at the right time. Um, I think Dave, Dave Garner knew me well enough that, and knew what the band needed that again, I was responsible and organized in a sense that I could take on the job. I mean, we talked about it and together he has the, he has the sound man at the time 
and me as the as the as the tour manager, we could make it work. Um, I, th- I think the band was just they were comfortable. They were comfortable with Dave's recommendation. They knew my reputation around town previously, just as a sound engineer, and also who I who I had worked with. So I think that helped. Can you describe a typical 24-hour period as a tour manager for the T-Birds on that European tour in 1983? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> or was there no such thing as there a typical 24-hour no period? There were, you know, it was 24-7, um, and, and it was nonstop. I mean, you know, honestly, it was a crazy time. And, you know, there were all kinds of things, you know, going on. And the buck stops with you, right, as the road manager. Yeah. And um, we, we have, I mean, we accomplished an incredible amount. We, we just, we got on, we, we left here, got to Europe, and we're in two vans. I was in a van with the four band members. And then there were two crew, Dave and another individual in the, in the, um, in the uh, cargo van with the equipment. And, uh, I really just couldn't look back. Never had time to look back, and there was, you know, you have to remember there were no cell phones. There was no, there were no GPS. Very few signs in English. <laughs> so we got, you know, we got separated a few times, and we just drove across Europe. And I mean, we certainly never missed a show. Um, and we every day was just another experience. Whether, um, you know, we we um, some great shows crowds that were so enthusiastic and um a lot of a lot of other things happening in between do you think that your personality and temperament made you a natural at at being road manager and later on managing the band overall yeah i think so i think i i you know i didn't know this i didn't have i didn't realize growing up early on that i had actually a, a pretty good sense of business and i found out i was really a, a quick learner in regard to the music business and st- starting with being a tour manager, just what it would take. And early on, I didn't have much to worry about as a sound man. You know, I mean, we set the gear up. I went out and mixed the sound. And, you know, you do that one gig after another gig, five, six nights a week. And it was great. I got I, I got an incredible amount of satisfaction standing up there at the sound console. And I loved mixing a band. I mean, it was just I, I was fortunate enough to work for bands that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Delbert McClinton was amazing, one of my favorite bands that I was, fo- you know, that was a fan of. Sleep at the Wheel, I listened to in in um in high school, well in college, in high school actually, yeah. And so I was already a fan of those of them too. So here I am, I'm working with with musicians that I not only respect but I love their music. And that was the one thing that was ultimately true with everybody I worked with. It, they weren't just, it wasn't just a, a business opportunity. They became my best friends. I mean, you know, we, we had this bond on the road, uh, you know, um, obviously more ultimately with the fabulous Thunderbirds because we all had this oh idea that we would like to do better. I mean, that we would maybe be able to create music and it could be successful. I think as we look back, never nearly as far as we did take it, which was amazing. But we, you know, I walked in and I took it, organized it, and they really respected that. And right away they saw that. And that's what I think where they, their confidence in my work came from. You mentioned that beyond business, they, they became friends and, and close friends. 
Were there times when that actually posed a problem, when it was tough to be a manager and, and do what you had to do despite being so close to them as and, and having them be such close friends? Not at any one given time because I could separate those things. And as long as the band respect what you're doing and the T-Birds themselves allowed me a lot of latitude to step up at the business end of things. Even at the beginning, just to organize how we did things on the road, they trusted me. And and I can't say that they, you know, we didn't really ever have uh, a point where we didn't see, well, I won't say that they didn't see eye to eye with me, but they trusted my decision to do what it, what it was that we were to do. And things just happened really quickly. Um, you don't have time to look back. So, you know, as, as we were doing, you know, getting more offers and it was, whether it was a decision that we were going to go back to Europe really quickly, we had just gotten back a few days, you know, before, or another tour of the United States, or this is where we were going to, we were going to do this tour. And at the end of the day, we were going to take the money from the tour and we were going to do this to the bus. Nobody questioned it. Everybody, you know, we obviously talked about things and then we moved together as a unit, I guess. If you could go back 30 years and give yourself some advice on how to manage bands, what would it be? Or do you think the just the industry has changed so much that nothing you do today is still relevant? I imagine some things still are, some of the core principles. Well, it has changed dramatically. And I don't think I could do what I did back then in the in today's world. Now, you got to remember... In in the 70s and the 80s, all of the bands that we spoke about, we could all just get in our step van or our own bus and go tour where there was a system that supported the bands where forget about whether you sold one record or a million records, that really wasn't relevant. There was a network of clubs out there that we could all crisscross the country and make a good living. With the T-Birds, again, we just didn't know at the time when I first joined them that we would have a, a, you know, a big record deal. It really wasn't about that. It was, okay, we're going to go out for three, six weeks. We'll go up to the Northeast. We'll play, and then we'll come back to Texas. We'll take three weeks off or two weeks off. Then we'll go do the South. And we could do that. And not only we, but Stevie Ray Vaughan was doing the same circuit. Delbert McClinton, we were crisscrossing paths with him, Sleep at the Wheel, um, and, you know, a dozen different bands um, at the time, even from, from Austin alone. That's something that that structure or that 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 network doesn't exist anymore. And that's one of the hardest things that when younger bands come to me and ask me, you know, what do I do? Or how do we get on the road? And I look at them and I kind of shake my head and I said, you know, I don't know if I have that answer. Um, we all stayed. The other thing we did was stay true to the music. We didn't give up. And, you know, Stevie's a great example. He worked incredibly hard. He had a vision of being successful, taking a style of music. He didn't care that what people thought, you know, they, you know, how many times he'd be told that nobody would ever buy the blues or they'd never play it on the radio. And they told the T-Birds and us the same thing. That's over and over again. And instead of becoming, instead of just throwing up your hands and giving up, we just kept on playing the music that they loved the most. One of the greatest pieces of uh, the thing that's one of the most satisfying things to me is I was able to take a style of music that nobody considered commercial and give the band a vehicle to ultimately be as successful as it led it, you know, led the fabulous Thunderbirds to be.
I've noticed a, a pattern in speaking to to people on the show, and that is that most of my guests have been guitarists thus far, and guitar artists of a certain age and older tend to pinpoint the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show as a transformative uh, event. Guitarists that are a little bit younger and are closer closer in age to me have, have had a number of them pinpoint listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan for the very first time as a similar type of transformative event, where they, they could tell you exactly where they were and what they were doing the first time they heard them. So I think that that impact and, and the the credit that the work that Stevie and the Thunderbirds and, and you did in bringing that music back to the forefront is can't be overstated. Uh, I totally I agree, um, and, and in the sense that again, when we were trying, when we were all kind of coming on board together and trying to put this music out in front of people, it wasn't a very acceptable style of music. Nobody, I can't tell you how many times again that they were told they'll never play that music on the radio or they'll never sell a record. And at that point, too, you have to remember, guys like B.B. King, B.B. King was still struggling out there. He was still playing clubs. Buddy Guy was playing clubs. Albert Collins, Albert King, you know, it all was, it hadn't, they hadn't elevated up to a point where, say, in the last, you know, in the last 15 or 20 years, where all of a sudden they were playing big venues and actually given the credit that they were due. And um, I feel like the T-Birds and Stevie in particular, we opened up an incredible amount of doors, um, both at radio and at places like when it was really important of MTV, where, you know, we had the Fabulous Thunderbirds, two top 10 videos, which was pretty amazing at the time. And we opened up people's eyes to a style of music and the record companies acknowledged it. And I think that in particular, those two bands helped so many bands get their foot in the door and ultimately you know be successful and i think that is true of any any blues style or you know blues influenced band that's around today i think it's it helped them jimmy vaughn left the t-birds in 89 which enabled him and his brother stevie to record an album together which i know they had been intending to do for a while I know you were intimately involved in the production and recording of A Family Style. What was your involvement in recording that album? Well, it started in the late 80s when the Fabulous Thunderbirds and Steve Ravon were, we were pretty much inseparable, touring together. T-Birds had had their success, and it kind of leveled out the playing field because it was a little awkward prior to that. Jimmy and Stevie, you know, sibling rivalries but stevie wasn't obviously stevie was successful and more you know successful at first but he loved his brother and he really wanted his brothers to succeed and obviously through the fabulous thunderbirds so when the thunderbirds had tough enough and it started to work and all of a sudden they were getting their notoriety i mean the person that was probably as happy as anybody was stevie watching that happen and all of a sudden we were on the road together and it started to give Jimmy and Stevie time to spend together. And all of a sudden, you know, they all, they talked very, oh, you know, it wasn't really official in any way, but briefly about doing an album together, thought it was something they would really like to do. Of course, the record company, there's nothing more that they wanted. They wanted a, a Vaughn Brothers record. They saw it as a great opportunity. And I was kind of the, the figure this all revolved around. So the record company didn't have a great relationship Certainly not with Jimmy and 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 Stevie. You know, it was it was 
okay, but you know, not one where they could sit down and, and really talk music to them. So they would whisper in my ear and say, you got to make this record happen. You got, you know, you know, see what you can do. Of course, the more Jimmy and Stevie talked about it by the time we got to 1989, Jimmy made the decision, you know, he just felt he wasn't getting the satisfaction musically out of the fabulous Thunderbirds. And he felt he would like to pursue maybe a solo career or, of course, the possibility of making the record with his brother. So we all we talked about it and we, I was given a basically a very short window based which revolved around Stevie's touring commitments. And it was we could start at the end of January and we could pretty much go till about June where then Stevie would have to be back on the road again. And took the idea to the record company. Of course, they jumped all over it. But talking about something and making a record happen are two different opposite things. You know, not, not one's not going to happen without the other. So, you know, it's like, okay, where do we start? And I knew I'd have to really take the bull by the horns and make this thing happen. So I started first by considering who might produce the record. And I talked to Jimmy and Stevie a little bit, and we kind of put together a short list. Um, Don was was right at the top because he had done Bonnie Raitt's album at the time, and the two brothers had worked on a Dylan record that he was producing. Of course, I called his manager up, and he was booked for the next six years. I mean, you know, I said, okay. The next one that thought made a little bit of sense was Billy Gibbons, but his management at the time, they just didn't see that as the right move for Billy's career, and it never got off the ground couldn't really get to Billy at the time, and it just didn't happen. And I thought, well, Nile Rodgers was a good choice. Stevie had worked with him on the, the David Bowie sessions and had nothing but good things to say. And I spent, obviously, I was really much closer to Steve, to Jimmy at the time, and I could sense that Jimmy had this really respect for what Nile was doing. The other thing, Jimmy just didn't want this to be a conventional record. He didn't want it to be what everybody expected, a blues guitar record. So got the name of Niles' contact and put the word out that the Vaughn brothers were wanted to talk to Nile and see if he'd be interested in producing this record. And this was December of 89, and Nile jumped on it. Niles said, I, you know, he was like, man, this sounds great. <laughs> so um, Stevie, Jimmy, and I jumped on a plane, and we went to New York, and Nile was in the studio, so we met him down at the studio, and uh, we started talking, and he loved the idea, so he says, so what? You got, you know, let me know what, what songs do you have? How many songs? And Jimmy and Stevie looked at each other and go, well, we really haven't gotten that far. We got a couple <laughs> ideas. Jimmy played a couple of, you know, melodies he had. Stevie had some ideas too. But Niall kind of looked at me and he says, well, can we really start this record? I said, and I had to go out on a limb. I said, you know what? We'll have songs. We'll be ready to go come March, you know? And everybody kind of, you know, gave each other a big hug and, and said, let's get this going and make it happen. The interesting thing was, is Jimmy and Stevie, like I said, they didn't, a lot of records have an A&R person involved, and you have a team of people making a record happen. This wasn't the case, and I don't want to belittle anybody at, at, at the record company. They just didn't have a personal relationship with either brother, and they couldn't, the brothers also were very, very, not controlling, but private. They did not want the record company in these sessions, in these meetings at all. It was very unusual because it all revolved, not by choice, but because that's the way the two brothers wanted this to work. So I went back to Austin. We talked a little bit more and decided because I had done prior to this three or four records in Memphis. And there was a studio there called Ardent and thought it would be a really good choice 
to start recording the tracks there. Everybody agreed. They were comfortable. Stevie had recorded there his last record, Instep, and the T-Birds had recorded there. Jimmy loved Memphis. Niall had never left New York. He'd done all <laughs> his sessions up there, but he agreed to come to Memphis, which he didn't regret. He had a great time. And we spent the next, um, you know, January and February gathering songs together. Put Jimmy in touch with a couple of different songwriters, um, Jerry Williams in one, who is a phenomenal, you know, who was, he's passed on, but is an incredible songwriter, helped Jimmy um, with some of his songs. Then Jimmy, I'm sorry, then Stevie and Doyle Bramhall Sr. got together and finished some songs. And by the time we reconvened in Memphis to start cutting tracks, we had about four or five songs ready to go. And as one was recorded, we kind of, you know, they finished the second, put it there. And it was it was a very unconventional record, but it was an amazing record and very spontaneous and uh, all done live in the studio. One of the other things was is they, they didn't want it to be like either record that the either brother had done before. So they didn't want the Thunderbirds involved. And, of course, Double Trouble weren't going to play on it. And we just left it up to Niall. Niall brought a drummer and a bass player um, Larry Aberman, Aberman and Al Berry down, who just fit in like they had been playing with the two brothers forever. And the sessions just clicked. It was just magical. What a wonderful memento and, and experience, especially given Stevie's tragic death, you know, shortly after. But uh, I, I imagine you must be incredibly proud of, of having helped accomplish that. Well, beyond the record, the fact is, and no one can see into the future, the fact that I did the you know, got jimmy and stevie together and actually made this come to fruition whereas it just couldn't have just happened where everybody just said oh yeah it'll be okay but it gave the two brothers time every day while we were in the studio and obviously outside of the studio to hang together to do things that they wanted to do their entire life i mean it was i, I believe it truly was stevie's happiest time of his life to be with his brother in the studio making music and ultimately this record i mean they were both really proud of family style and it was more of a showcase of the songs it was you know stevie plays some great guitar on there but it's the melting of the two guitar styles together and his vocal style really is very very accomplished but i again most satisfying to me is i can look back and say the two of them got to spend this whole time together because nobody could foresee what was going to happen in August. After Stevie's tragic death, you ended up managing the Archangels, which included uh, Charlie Sexton, Doyle Bramhall II, and Double Trouble, Chris Slayton and Tommy Shannon. Your book mentions the story about how the four of them were uh, jamming informally at the at the rehearsal um, space, and you ended up asking them if they'd like to open for Robert Cray, who was who was coming to town. How did you end up coming up with this idea? Did it just kind of click? Had you been thinking about it all along? Oh, my mind's always turning and spinning. But I was managing Doyle Bramhall. Um, Doyle was at the very end of the Thunderbirds, kind of Jimmy's tenor with the band. He had brought Doyle in as a second guitar player. I had met Doyle up in North Northern California when he was really a younger teenager because he used to come out to see the band. And, his, you know, obviously his dad was great friends with Jimmy and Stevie. So Doyle and I got to know each other, and when Jimmy left the T-Birds, Doyle left, but Doyle left with an understanding I, I was going to try to help him with a solo career. I thought he was incredibly talented. Probably in regard to the two Vaughn brothers, they saw Doyle as the true next great talent. 
so I had gotten Doyle a uh, what, what they call a demo deal with Geffen Records, and dem- and Geffen said, "Well, get Doyle in the in the rehearsal room and cut a bunch of demos." And that was where we were at the time at in Austin at the Arc, the Austin Rehearsal Complex. It was the only place really in town you could go in rehearse. It was a great atmosphere. All these different musicians were there. People were just hanging out and chatting, and so. Doyle was rehearsing with uh, Tommy Shannon was actually playing bass, but Chris wasn't playing drums with another drummer. But at the same time, Chris was down there all the time because it was just a good, you know, it was a good place to be to, to get your head cleared. A lot of that needed to be done. This was this was right after Stevie died. No one knew what they were doing. Nobody knew what was going to be the next step. Of course, it was it was just a, a, a very tough, a very tough time for everybody. So Chris was there. Charlie Sexton had just come back from Los Angeles. Charlie had a little room there at the Ark, and he was rehearsing every day. And in between Doyle going in to cut his tracks, his demos, they did start playing together. They would step into Charlie's room, and they would just kind of mess around. It wasn't anything in any formal way. But this, the Ark was down right off of the backside of Congress Avenue and Academy, and the opera house, when it was running, was right above it on Academy. So I used to go up there, and Tim O'Connor, who ran and owned the opera house, was a really good friend. And I was up there, and we were just talking, and he had Robert Cray coming. And I don't know, this little bulb, light bulb went off in my, my head, and I go, do you have some support? And he said, no. And I said, you know, and this is where the story kind of developed. And I said, well, I might have a band for you. And I said, you know, I'm not sure if I I told him or I ran back down. I may have ran back down to the Ark, and that's when I approached Doyle and Chris and Tommy and Charlie and said, "Do you guys are you guys interested in op- doing an opening set for Robert?" Craig? Did they have any hesitation? They thought about it for a second, but I had I think I told them it was about 30 minutes. I knew if, I knew if I told them it wasn't really a long set that they probably considered doing because they didn't have any songs at the time. I mean, they could come up with a 30-minute set and easily enough. And I think at that point, they just thought it would be fun to do. It wasn't really even um, this thought that this was going to get them a gig as a band and a record deal. They just they knew Robert Cray, and they just thought it would be fun. Everybody was really young. I mean, Doyle and Charlie were just maybe 21 or at the time, and even Chris and Tommy. So it was just it was it just an informal and a fun thing to do. And um so they said yeah and then they stepped out and they didn't have a band name. They said, "Well, what should we call it?" And I'll give Chris Layton the, all that credit cuz he looked up and he saw the Ark sign, Austin Rehearsal Complex and he said, "How about the Archangels?" What a great name. Yeah. So no reservations because they figured it was a, a short-term one-time thing initially. Well, yeah, and then of course again, my wheels were spinning. And they they got up and played that night. You know, well, it was a few weeks later, of course, the show. The show happened, and, of course, the phone went, rang off the phone. How did the, the show go? Day. It was great. I mean, you know, it was just, it was real rough. And somewhere I have the cassette tape of the show. It was a short show, but it was just, they came up with some songs that they felt they could do and get away with playing. But, of course, the, the you know, the writers in town at the time, the music writers saw that. And the phone just rang. Is this the next Austin Supergroup? And this, you know, everybody wanted to know what was going on here. And I think at that point, the four of them started taking it seriously. And um, it was, there was a, um, from a technical standpoint, 
it was interesting because Charlie was signed to MCA Music and Doyle was signed to Geffen and they were both owned at the time by Universal. So there was a little, you know, there was some um, some continuity or some, you know, some commonality there. And um, when I talked to Doyle's A&R person at Geffen and suggested that maybe there's this opportunity to go from a Doyle Bramhall record to this Archangel's, he loved the idea, and that's that's really where the Archangels uh, grew out of. I don't know if you follow basketball much, but Phil Jackson, the head coach, um, went to the Lakers in in '99, I believe, and had to manage a team with Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal on it. And part of what he had to do was to manage these two superstars being on the same team and learning to play together. How did you handle having Charlie and Doyle in the same band? given how well-known they each were and how talented they were? Well, it was actually the interesting part about this. Of course, I knew Charlie when he was grown up from about 12 years old. So we were friends and we were, well, you know, we knew each other. And of course, because of the Thunderbirds and I watched him get his first deal and, and they move him out to Los Angeles and kind of turn him into a pop star and the whole beat so lonely and, and the image and all. And again, when the Thunderbirds, we'd come out to Los Angeles Charlie would come to our show and it was, you know, it was a little awkward. It was, you know, I didn't know what to think, you know. And by the time, first of all, by the time 1990 came around, Charlie's records, you know, he didn't become a true, the pop star they probably wanted him to be. And, you know, Austin kind of at one point kind of considered Charlie sold out on them. Everybody wanted him to be a blues rockabilly kid. And he didn't follow that path. You know, he followed a path that kind of um, transitioned or transformed him into a pop star. And he came back to Austin and, you know, he was, he was received well, I think, when he got back. And now Doyle, nobody knew. I mean, Doyle was this kid, young kid who got... So he wasn't well-known prior to that? Oh, no, no, okay. no. Because, you know, he grew up in Northern California. He came and played second guitar with Jimmy Vaughn and the Thunderbirds, but not, not well-known at all whether outside the industry or inside the industry. So one of my problems was everybody considered Charlie Sexton's band. Uh. And, you know, Chris and Tommy and I were good friends. We were probably a little closer in age. And I saw what Double Trouble, I knew better than anybody what Double Trouble meant. And, you know, having, you know, coming out of this, you know, Steve Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. But a lot of rec- people in the record company thought it was really Charlie's band. Charlie was the guy. And Chris and Tommy didn't get bothered by it that much, but it was really a little tough on Doyle. And Doyle and I had to sit down on many occasions and I told him, you just got to believe in this. Let's go. It's okay. And I said, basically, your talent will ultimately, people will change their opinion and their ideas of what this band is about. And after six months, and when the first record was done, people knew who Doyle Bramhall was. And it wasn't really, don't, don't get me wrong, I have a huge, huge amount of respect for Charlie. Charlie's style is different than Doyle's style, but that was what was so great, the way it meshed in the Archangels. Um, something that's really also important, when, it was, when Little Steven was chosen as the producer, and it was between... Led Zeppelin bass player. John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones. Wow. I'm sorry. The two producers that were there were John Paul Jones and little Steven. John Paul Jones came to Austin and met the band, and he was great. Wow. And, and he really wanted to do it. Um, 
our A&R person, Gary Gersh, at um, at Geffen, because then we met Stephen, and both seemed like good choices. But I think he was closer to Stephen, and he cho- he decided, or it was decided, maybe Stephen would be the better guy. And we all agreed. I mean, no, nobody, I don't think we could have made a bad record. But what what really came out of it is Stephen, when when the Archangel started, Doyle had his songs and Charlie had his songs. So we would do a Doyle song, they would do a Charlie song, you know, back and forth. They didn't mesh together. Stephen came up with the concept of the sharing the songs. So it really, really was a band. And that that really was what made that record such a good record because, you know, you've got Doyle and Charlie singing off of each other. It wasn't six songs or five songs of Doyle's, five songs of Charlie's. No matter how good the Archangels were, and it is so frustrating because just personalities just couldn't keep them together. At, you know, early part of the 90s, Doyle and Charlie just would you know just having problems dealing with each other and as the band got more successful it just the wheels just came off of it Doyle dealt with his problems in one way Charlie did in another way Doyle's wasn't a great way because as most people know it was heroin and drugs and alcohol and it just fell apart at one point we just felt we tried everything we could do you know Doyle did went to rehab a couple of times and went into the program but at the time, it finally had to be decided that the Archangels couldn't go on. And that's where the wheels came off for good. Tell me about Storyville. <laughs> uh, another great band. I didn't know him at the time, but Malford Milligan. And I, Malford and I, are obviously, I st- I'm still working with Malford. And we just laughed about this because I remember when he was in a band called Stick People here in town. And I didn't know what to think of him. And I didn't really even put this all back together till many years later that we kind of knew each other. But he had done a record called Storyville, Bluest Eyes. And I can't give you all of the, how it they all came together, but Chris and Tommy and David Grissom and David Holt started doing shows with Malford at the old Antones, I remember, on Guadalupe. And Chris, who was always my counterpart business-wise, as drummers usually are (laughs) in any band, Chris called me and said, you should come out and see Storyville. And at first, really, I mean, I was knocked out. But remember, nobody really knew who the band was. So the first few gigs weren't well packed. You know, they weren't packed. They weren't, um, they were were good. People loved them. But again, as things developed in this town and realized it was a real band and Grissom and Holt, two great guitar players. Of course, Chris and Tommy, the rhythm section, but Malford, an amazing singer. And slowly, they kind of got their oh, their their sound together, and it just again blew up in Austin. And uh, people were just lining up around the building when there was a Storyville show, and they were just a you know Malford just was a what a powder keg of a lead of a of a front man. I mean, he just could. And he's told me later on, he said, you got those two guitar players and that rhythm section behind you. They push you to places you've never been pushed before. So it was it was really good for him because it made him a better singer. And it made him, he was, Malford would just, you know, put a crowd into a frenzy. And uh, it was amazing. But the, the, the really interesting thing about Storyville is even at that time, which was, I think, 1995 or so, 
I couldn't get them signed to a record deal. I got turned down like I did with the Thunderbirds. Everybody I went to just still said, well, we, you know, we don't see it as selling a lot of records or being commercially successful. So grunge music was in full effect right? at that point. The Seattle scene. Absolutely. And the one thing about the 40 years, I have never once worked with what they would consider to be what was the music, the, 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 the style of music of the day. I've always worked <laughs> against the grain. And I'm really proud of that. I mean, as I look back, because I gave bands a vehicle and a place to be able to make their music, sometimes it was successful. I, I think every record my name is on, I think, is successful. I feel good about it. it. may not have sold as much as another one, but I think musically, none of the records were made being dictated to the musicians by the record label what the record should be. Whether people like it or not, that's the record that band wanted to make. Whether it was a Jimmy Vaughn solo record or whether it was an Archangels record or a Storyville or Soul Hat, it was the record those guys wanted to make. So the Storyville story is interesting because I wasn't sure where to go, but I was reading Billboard magazine, and there was a story in there about uh, an album, a label called Code Blue, which Mike Vernon, who was a very well-known producer, had worked with John Mayall and Clapton in the 70s and uh, had a really good sense of what the blues was about. He was starting a label on Atlantic Records, East-West Records, and it was going to be called Code Blue. And I reached out, I found his number, I dug it up in England, and I told Mike who I was and who the band was. He flew over to Austin, saw the band, and was like, I get it, this is amazing. And he signed us, he signed Storyville to East West Records, Code Blue, and they uh, went into the studio um, and recorded um, the first record, A Piece of Your Soul, which is an amazing record. Not only a blues record, but a great rock record. Some amazing guitar play. The songs are really strong. And and the and the frustrating part is Atlantic Records, who was releasing it in the States here, just never realized what they had, what that record was. I, and I still think it sold over 200,000 copies with Good Day for the Blues. And I wish I could say they did a great job of helping market the record, but they were so busy again with what was the flavor of the day we just got left out on our own. We did a second record for like, dog years um, for, for uh, with Storyville. And again, at the same time, and I, and I don't know if it's something that's in the water, but you know, those five musicians just felt it was time to, to go different directions. And they walked into my office um, after dog years had come out and uh, just decided that the band was going to break up. You stayed in touch with Malford, and uh, who was a singer in Storyville, and I understand that you're now managing his new band, uh, Big Cat. Tell me about Big Cat. Uh, let's just talk about Malford, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Big Cat was an idea of a band, but maybe at the end of the day, all of the guys who are in the band along with Malford have had a huge amount of commitments to do. And l let me back up a minute. When, when Malford came to me a year or so ago, he... It sat down and, and told me he would like to work together and asked me if I was interested in working with him again. And, and I love Malford. And I, you know, didn't really hesitate. And he said, we're going to put together kind of a blues band. And he told me who were the players. And I was had a really high regard for all of them. But as things developed, I also realized that every one of those players had a lot on their plate, 
had a lot of commitments, were playing. Uh, older guys who didn't have the ability to just drop everything right. and say, hey, I can commit 100% to what you're doing. So I still did, I still gave it everything I had, but I unfortunately couldn't get the commitment I might have needed from everybody. And I want to, this is not to criticize anybody, you know, it's just, I think Malford is incredibly talented and he has something to say that he still hasn't said. And I'm going to try to give him a platform and something where he could reach I may mean, not be the biggest superstar of the de- you know, of the century, the decade, or whatever. But I still think Malford is an incredible singer, incredible frontman, and you know, we are trying. We're going to try to put a plan together where he can get outside of Austin and outside of Texas, and maybe become a little bit better known around the world. He's incredible. I saw Storyville play live for the very first time at Tommy Shannon's birthday party uh, at Antone's a few weeks ago. And it was incredible. Like you and like many people, it was just it just left me scratching my head. Like, why did this band not reach the heights that everyone thought they would reach? But the, the, the a Storyville show at Antones on Gua, the, the this uh, Guadalupe were just ama- amazing, and that's where the album Live at Antones comes from. But again, it was just phenomenal. The energy that was in there, the people would sing back to Malford, and it was so loud in there, and the band i mean was just would would drive him and he would drive the band and i wish i could tell you why so many bands with so much talent cannot get past you know certain obstacles you mentioned in your book that you managed the band uh, vallejo for a while but this was around 2000 2001 and they were one of the many casualties when the bottom fell out of the record industry I've heard people argue that technology might have decimated record sales, but it enabled artists to contact people and to reach an audience that they wouldn't have reached, been able to reach otherwise, and that this increased demand for live music and that bands that no longer sold records could all of a sudden make more money playing live because they have reached this audience. This argument makes sense to me intellectually, but I don't see this increased demand for live music, at least not for the medium and small acts, at least not in Austin, which calls itself the live capital music of the world. What's your assessment of the state of live music in Austin? You're absolutely right there, because if you were a band that established themselves, you know, around, well, either prior to 2000 or in those coming years, you are in good shape because it has all come out to touring now. So if you if you are established as a touring artist, you can go out and there's a demand and there is a more of a, you know, there's there's definitely a more cause to make your money from touring. And so many bands that establish themselves, that's what they can, that's what they can do. It's a two-way street. Unfortunately, it did decimate the music business and where record companies were able to develop artists and they didn't do a great job with everyone, but they at least were there to do that, whether it's through marketing or press and publicity, those days are long gone. And it's up to the individual bands, and they're all fighting for this small amount of space to try to kind of rise to the top. And even if you don't rise to the top, if you're, if you're dealing with a lower, the lower level and you got, you know, 10,000 bands there, and you can get up a few percent and get it to where there's a few thousand bands, of course, you try to rise to the level where you're dealing with you're up and around the echelon of, say, four or five or six different bands. But it's a tough road to travel. 
you know, this is a, this is a, a good discussion, maybe a lengthy discussion of whether or not Austin's still alive and is the capital of the world, whether Austin really supports bands. You know, the one part I can't see now is I can give you the long list of bands that were around that people would come and pack the clubs to see, starting, you know, with Bob Schneider or the Archangels or Storyville. Vallejo, when they were better known or best known, you know, would all pack the clubs they were playing, Steamboater, Antones. And there was always another band that was just coming up and was in that position. And the last one that I can truly remember is the Los Lonely Boys, because before their big record came out, they were packing Antones and people were coming out and they had kind of um, inherited that status of being the, the next big Austin band, but people supported it. If you ask me today, who's packing the clubs as a band, there's nobody. And I don't know what that's a sign of, you know, a sign of the times. People not really interested to come out and see bands play. Are they not following the way they followed the Storyville, the Vallejo, or Soul Hat, you know, Bob Schneider? I don't know. And it's it's very frustrating. And is And sometimes, as much as I read the stories about the mayor and the city council, they're going to do this and they're going to do that. You can't make something out of something that's not there. So I'm not sold on the fact that this is still the music capital of the world. I've been sorely disappointed and at times heartbroken going to see shows, whether they're local artists or someone coming through Austin, who are incredible musicians, only for them to play to a house that has not even a fifth full. And I don't, I don't know what's going through their minds. I know they're professionals. They give it their all and they continue doing it. But I can't help but feel for them and how it's just not, I mean, life's not fair, but it's not fair that they're not getting their, their fair share and that people are not coming out and, and recognizing what, what they truly are. Right. And I'll give you a good example. I had a group from Japan here last year who were doing a special TV piece on Austin and the music. And they asked me to take them to a few different venues and all and, in the process of doing that, I took them to first to the Continental Club for a happy hour where they saw the Peterson brothers. And they were just, you know, first it was, they were great. They're really, there's a good example. They're great kids. They play amazing, you know, music. And they're still having a hard time trying to get their foot in the door and, you know, get a really consistent draw. And the, the Japanese crew said, these guys are playing at a happy hour. This great musician I said, yeah. So we go over to the, um, we go over to the Saxon. Like, so you got to go see this. David Grissom's there. There's, you know, no really cover. It's tips. And they're just blown away that this quality of music that they don't see is at a happy hour at the Saxon pub for a few bucks. And they just were like, my God, this is. And I said, well, yeah, that's what this town is about. There's no shortage of great musicians. There's shortage of really uh, of people that are willing to come out, pay a cover and really be supportive of bands. And uh, and I had a, a guest highlight how this supposed increase in, in demand for live music might be true when with people paying 200 bucks for a ticket to go see Adele, but not paying five bucks to go see someone who is, of course, not nowhere near as well known, but is incredibly talented just around the corner, your local artist. Yeah, I think local, to be honest, I have a theory that, and and people may agree or disagree, in this town... You have Austin City Limits Music Festival, and then you have South by Southwest. And I really believe that those two events suck so much money out of the musical funds of people, of music goers, 
that they're willing to just go to these two events and skip so much that might happen in between. You know, you're, you're always going to have shows at the Irwin Center or shows at the, you know, in the Moody Theater, but I, I don't know. It just, I, I think a, a lot of the entertainment dollars get sucked out of people's pockets and they have to be definitely thoughtful of where they're going to spend their money. And it certainly is more expensive to go see a show where the tickets are $100, $200, $500 for the weekend or whatever it is. I think that really helps the, de- it really hurts the development of new bands mm-hmm. who have a harder time getting people to come out there to see them. I had a, a guest, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's an incredible guitarist. Uh, his name is J.D. Simo. And uh, he was on the show and he was, he was talking about how growing up, he got a chance to play live left and right day after day after day. He spent a few years in Nashville playing five, six nights a week, three, four, five sets a, a night, just playing, putting in thousands and thousands of hours to, to hone his, his, his skills and to get to the place where he is now or to prepare him to get to where he is now. And he was lamenting that live music is just nowhere near as prevalent in our day-to-day life and our culture as it used to be. And he felt bad for younger kids and musicians, younger musicians coming up, who just don't have even a fraction of the opportunities that he had to play live. And he's he's in his 30s. Right. It's not like this is some 60-something-year-old talking about what it used to be like in the good old days. No, no, the good old days. And when I grew up, you basically had, you know, with your options out there, you, you kind of had two choices, sports or music, and maybe some combination of the two. You didn't have video games. You didn't have smartphones. You didn't have all these other apps and, you know, social networking, social media. People, you know, went and music was your primary way of entertainment as you were growing up as a teenager. So, you know, for me, buying a record was a big thing. When the when I was a fan of somebody and their new album came out, and I ran to the store and I'd buy it within the first couple of days. And, you know, my record collection just grew, grew, grew and grew. And uh, you just don't see that. You don't see the priority of music in people's minds anymore. You don't, you know, there is an exception to every rule. And some of my friends have kids that are growing up and listening to great music. And it's a big part of their life. But that's a small part, I think, of the of the of the masses, uh, uh, you know, the majority of the people don't find music as a part of their experience growing up. You know, they're more important. It's about a me world, you know, social media, Facebook, and it just it doesn't seem to be a priority. And then you know, you're right. Where it hurts so many musicians because there's just a limited amount of people out there willing to to buy music. Having said all this. And and you mentioned some of the efforts that the city council, at least here in Austin, and the mayor are, are, are putting forth, trying to boost and 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 improve conditions for the live music scene and for musicians. Short of as audience members, us going out and attending shows and going and supporting them and, and putting our dollars where where our mouths are or, or, and right. supporting them, is there really much else we can do? No. And if you wait and if you wait around to think that the city or any you know any group of people are going to solve the problems then there will be no music scene going on and if stevie or the t-birds or ray benson if we had all waited for somebody to put something on our table or on our plate nothing would have ever happened we didn't have those expectations 
the end of the day, it's the love of the music. You either love it or you better, you should find, you know, go find another job, go do something else. And I've worked with people that that was the way they were going to make, they were going to make a living. And it, whether they made enough money to pay their rent or they could go buy a dozen cars, it didn't really matter whether they sold one record or a million records. They were going to do this. I mean, Stevie would have still been making music whether he sold, you know, whether he was successful or not. Jimmy Vaughn, the fabulous Thunderbirds, that's what they were going to do. There was no other, you know, there was no other choice. They didn't, you know, they didn't graduate college and say, I think I'll try this music thing because, you know, maybe I could get on The Voice or America's Got Talent. This is where they were going. And what it, wherever it took them is where it was going to take them. And again, I think it, it makes a bigger impact. Malford Milligan, the same way. That's what he knows. He knows how to sing and he loves to sing and he's not willing to give up yet. And I think people have to realize that the answer's not going to come from some group or some city, I mean, you know, or some city organization. It's this, the whole music scene developed in Austin out of the love for the music. And I'm going to jump back a little bit. I mean, I was here during the Cosmic Cowboy, and that's how, what brought me here, the whole progressive country thing. Like it or not like it, it was a great scene. People love that music. They put their heart and soul into it. There's some great music that came out of that that time, um, great songwriters. The music itself, unfortunately, didn't hold up. But when that progressive country music thing started to die, of course, somehow it, it turned around into the what led into the blues scene here. And the guys like, you know, the Vaughn, Jimmy and Stevie or the Thunderbirds or anybody who was around at the time will tell you they couldn't get arrested in 1978 or 79. <laughs> you know, they couldn't get a gig. Clifford was nice. Clifford Antone was nice enough to open a club and give him a place to play, kind of pay him a few bucks when he could out of his pocket. But it wasn't until, you know, 1981 or 80, 82 or 83 that all of a sudden people were supporting the blues artist in town. They didn't give up. That's the point, you know. What do you think will happen? Well, at this point, I'm 61, and I haven't burnt out completely <laughs> from, and, and I got to tell you, you know, I have experienced a lot of frustration, you know, from watching the Archangels reach the heights they did and then break up. And we didn't even talk about Soul Hat, which was an amazing band in the 90s, packing the clubs they were playing and the same thing, self-destructing, Storyville, self-destructing. The Vallejo story is complicated with three brothers who are still friends of mine, but didn't see the writing on the wall and didn't really get serious enough when they had an opportunity to get serious and the record company was there. And the same thing, the wheels come off. And I did, I mean, I stepped back for a while. I had to because I really couldn't take it anymore. I needed to, I needed a kind of a breath of fresh air. For me personally, that's where I went back to where I started getting back into the but the business of driving and owning the tour buses and the buses don't argue with you. It might break <laughs> down, but it was just the peace of mind that I needed. So after, after, a, you know, another Archangels go where we put the band basically back together, got the entire organization restructured again and got all this great opportunity. We went over to London, played a month with Eric Clapton and had a, things that most bands would only wish they could get. 
we, you know, prior to the album coming out, and this was the one from Stubbs called Living in a Dream, and uh, we had everything, everything that could be good set up to happen, and still the guy, the band members couldn't work out their problems from within. So I've had a lot of frustration, and with a little bit of time off, I'm still a little optimistic. I'd like to think that I can help Malford Milligan give him a platform and give him the opportunity to make the music that he wants to make and that there are still people out there that want to hear it. So I'm going to be positive, at least for a little bit longer. I'm not sure, you know, if it's if that's a kind of a pipe dream or not, but I definitely have reservations as yourself, you said whether or not Austin can truly carry the torch. And I've seen some really great people. I mean, uh, you know, Jeff Plankenhorn, who is around town here, and and I've seen him play a couple of times. He's just really amazing. He's got this unique thing going on and trying to, you know, just get some notoriety. And it's tough. It's really um, not an easy thing to do anymore. Mark, I... um... I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I, I want to commend you for all the incredible work uh, that you've done and enabling so many of us to, to listen to and, and to witness live so much wonderful music over, over so many decades. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I find myself, I mean, um, incredible. Lucky is a funny word because a friend of mine said, you always you make your good luck. So I hate using that because I don't think I was lucky. I was in, I was fortunate enough to work with some amazing musicians and I didn't really, I didn't set out to do that. I didn't set out with any specific plan. I just knew I loved and embraced music. And at the end of the day, when I look back 40 years, I've had an opportunity to work really closely with some great musicians, but also then also be a part of tours and having worked with people that I was truly in awe of, you know, from Eric Clapton, you know, I've been, met and been around a couple of the Beatles, um, the Rolling Stones, and uh, just just Bob Dylan, and and you know, it's it's been a great ride of forty years. And you asked me at the very beginning how I was how I grew up in New York. I grew up always with a camera in my hand, and it was when we went on family outings and little vacations that always carried a little camera. And that camera came with me to Austin when I moved here, a little Kodak Instamatic. And I carried it on the road, and I was, I was never, per se, a photographer, but I just took pictures when the time was right, when I had a moment. And I kept on taking these pictures, and then the camera got a little better in quality. Eventually, I bought a 35-millimeter Canon and learned how to use it. And I just kept on taking pictures, and those pictures kind of went into books and into boxes basically documented the, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s with all these pictures. And it wasn't until oh, a couple of years ago where I was showing friends, we were looking through the books, and they kept on saying, you really need to do something with these pictures and share them with people. And everybody always says they want to put out a book, but I actually stopped and said, I'm going to do this. And I got some help from a few different people. And one day I opened up Microsoft Publisher, and I started laying out the pictures and designing the book. And along with a friend, Billy Perkins, who's done a lot of poster art in town, helped me with the cover. I really did all of the writing, all of the layout myself. And I had a great, a good team of people and McCarthy Print who put the book together. I wanted to make it a really good quality book, hardcover, that if it was sitting on your coffee table, you'd say, 
some work went into that. And it was really a labor of love. I, I mean, it wasn't necessarily that it was going to be uh, a New York Times bestseller. I wanted people to share share my experiences with those people through the pictures that I had taken. And I got so, I've gotten back so much great feedback from people. Some people that were with me on the road going, God, I never took any pictures. Now I can <laughs> see where I was. Thank you so much for doing this. For fans who got to see pictures, because the concept of the book Though there are some, obviously, pictures of guys playing on stage, Stevie or Jimmy Vaughn, but it was really to give people a perception of them outside of the stage, in the studio, at the airport, in a hotel room, on the bus. I, I wanted people to see them kind of with, and in fact, with Stevie with his hat off. <laughs> and that's the way it's it funny you mentioned that because one, one photo that kind of really struck me is uh, having being a great admirer of, of Stevie and his music, there's a photo of him playing Nintendo with uh renee martinez right and to me it just kind of i don't want to say shattered but it just gave me this it, it, it transported me to this entire different dimension of what his life must have been so i know exactly what you're talking about right and and to give people an idea that they they put their pants on the same way and 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 that's a part of me again and this is kind of the concept of the of having been fortunate enough to work in a business that i loved that i work that i woke up every day and enjoyed and have no regrets to this day I consider going from the front of the stage to the back of the stage. When I was a kid and I was in college and high school, I'd go to these shows, I'd sit out there and I'd buy my ticket and I'd love the music. But I always, I'd watch, I'd see these guys climbing on the scaffolding. I'd see this guy at a sound console or the lights. And they were somewhat rudimentary back then, but I'd go, wow, that's really interesting. And when I, when I finally got to Texas and I got my first gig and I realized now instead of in the front of the stage, I'm on the back of the stage, it was a really interesting place to see People that all of a sudden that I was in awe of, not worshiping, but love their music, I'm working with them. I'm meeting with them and doing things with them. And I'm just really, I'm incredibly happy that I got to do something that I really, truly love to do. The book represents 40 years. I hope there's going to be 41, 42, 43 years. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I want to still try to keep that momentum going. For sure. It's it's a wonderful book. It's it's a treasure of incredible stories and images, and I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, and if you're listening and if you go to hometodaygonetomorrow.net, you can read more about it, and you could, uh, hopefully, if you're interested, you'll buy it. Absolutely. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.